Good afternoon, this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is part two for today's lecture. This is biomedical portrait number five, and I believe this is chapter six. We were just finishing up our discussion of the gingipanes, and I got cut off again. Sorry about that. But we were mentioning the fact that these gingipanes produce different molecular species. Um, of polypeptide. And the polypeptides, these proteases, have a unique substrate specificity. And this paper that we were looking at was interested in knowing whether or not the P. gingivalis gingipanes could possibly alter the protein component of LDL and LDL in circulating blood after, of course, secretion from P. gingivalis. And they wanted to identify what alterations may have occurred to the lipoprotein fraction. Now, I can tell you that there are signal transduction cascades that these are typically associated with microbial sensoria to determine what local infection court conditions obtain so that the bacteria are able to have this signal transduction cascade poised to respond to specific signals. These would be molecular signals by altering, of course, the gene expression profile. So this is nothing more than reorienting the transcriptome of the bacteria, presumably to initiate their virulence factor repertoire so that those polypeptides are made, such as the gingipans and maybe specific molecular species as well, depending on the environmental conditions of the infection cord. So what is going to be detected at the pathophysiological level is a dysbiotic event that is, is going to be some kind of stress to the host system that is recognized by the pathogen. And the pathogen then responds to the severity of what they're calling here dysbiosis. And then that will aid in the manufacture of protein products and presumably changes in intermediary metabolism and cell fate of each of the individual colonizing P. gingivalis cells so that the bacteria is able to activate um, a profiled conditioning of the microbiome or molecular, depending on if they are living in a planktonic, in a biofilm, or just as an adhesion mechanism to, to bind to host cells, how, how to deal with that current environment by generating specific signals that activate what's known as the two-component system, which I brought up a few lectures ago. So now we're going to get into this two-component system in some detail. So get ready for this, okay? So in many, bac <laughs> many bacteria, there's a, there's a common um, two-component system. 
We're just going to call it TCS from now on, right? And there are two proteins that are involved rather canonically. One is a histidine kinase and a cognate response regulator. So you have an HK and an RR. So the HK, the kinase, receives external stimuli as a signaling mechanism that induces autophosphorylation at a unique histidine residue in this polypeptide, which is a component of the TCS system. The phosphoryl group that was added to the histidine is then, it doesn't remain there, it is transferred from the histidine to an aspartic acid residue. But now the aspartic acid is going to be on the response regulator, or the RR. So first, histidine kinase is phosphorylated. Um, and the histidine kinase on a histidine residue, by the way. And then that phosphate is transferred from the histidine residue to an aspartic acid residue on the cognate response regulator. See how the two component system functions. Now, what happens after that? Well, the response regulator is activated by that second phosphorylation, that transferred phosphorylation. And that triggers a multitude of cellular responses that induces an interaction with other regulatory regions in the DNA to turn on specific target genes. So now a new transcriptome has been initiated. This is all on the side of the pathogen. Okay. So most bacteria possess 10 different TCSs. That's right, 10 different two-component regulatory systems. Right. So this means it's a highly organized, efficient, virulence component of pathogenic bacteria. And because there are so many of these TCSs, these two component systems, obviously they're going to regulate multiple alterations in cellular function. And they're the same functions I brought up to you at the beginning of today's lecture. Metabolism, this is the metabolism in the bacterial cell. The virulence-virulence factor system, generation thereof, a stress response transcriptome that's going to deal with probably the, the host innate immune system response to the virulence factor production. We're not finished. These TCSs are also going to control where this bacterial population fit into the biofilm and with that, <laughs> there's going to be a necessary component of bacterial antibiotic resistance. So such things as antibiotic pump systems to be able to pump antibiotics out of the cell. And then ultimately competence in conjugation and in cell division. So because of all of these um, different systems affected by the TCSs, for many years, the TCSs have been um, considered as potential targets for pharmaceutical 
companies. These would be not so much um, antibiotics, but they would be antibacterial pharmaceuticals. So antibiotics, not just necessarily killing the, the um, bacterium, but interrupting its virulence. If the virulence is interrupted and the bacterium cannot become pathogenic or it can't adhere to a host cell, then the cell doesn't have to die because it won't replicate. Because if it doesn't carry out its normal function as a pathogen, it will not be able to garner carbon sources, nitrogen sources, etc., to be able to proliferate and cause a frank infection. Okay? So, as you know, there are different strains of bacteria. So there's um, it's one of them you can find in the ATCC, and another one is uh, wild type, but it's found it can be isolated in the oral cavity of people. And these different strains of Porphyromonas gingivalis will generate different collections of these two component systems. So for the wild type 83, this particular strain of uh, P. gingivalis will generate a 2HK, 2RR, but also a 1HK, 2RR, 1HHK. Whereas the ATC accession will generate different TCSs. 1-H-H-H-K, 1-H-K, 3-R-R. You see how these two different components can be scrambled together. And when they're scrambled together, they organize a unique template to then generate the virulence factors necessary for a successful colonization. Okay? And presumably, these TCS systems will be variable. Now, I caution to call them hyper-variable because you start thinking then about recombination mechanisms, for example, uh, and the Ig locus, the T-cell receptor locus. This isn't as sophisticated as that. This is just using a two-component system and rearranging those components in such a way that there is a multiplicity there is a speciation of the TCS families. That's how you end up with 10 different um, cognate TCS components in bacteria, right? Just by shuffling around this thing kinase uh, and the cognate response regulator. Now, basic structure of this is a transmembrane sensor protein. And that's normally an HK with an extracellular, but actually truly membrane-bound sensor domain. And then there's a conserved intracellular kinase core. So it's a transmembrane protein acting as the sensor. Now, an external signal recognized by the sensor domain, whatever that signal happens to be, will promote ATP-dependent autophosphorylation at that histidine residue. But that occurs deep in the kinase core. Then, as, you, as we've just alluded to, the phosphate is, of course, transferred to the intracellular 
um, response regulator. And that occurs directly in its one domain of the polypeptide, known as the regulatory domain. And that's at that aspartate residue, right? That will promote specific conformational changes to the RR polypeptide, which is then considered activated because it binds to regulatory regions and promoters of its target genes. So it starts acting as a transcription factor a bacterial transcription factor. And it doesn't just induce specific transcription. It also will repress other transcription. So it's a complete change in the transcriptome from its TCS. These cysteine kinases also have phosphatase activities, of course. And that means there's a modulation of phosphorylation status that regulates the phosphorylation status of the whole system. Because if a phosphatase removes the phosphate before it's transferred um, to the RR, then there will be no activation. So there's multiple areas of regulation here. Right? And again, you most you have to understand there's a whole um, another level of regulation just to do with the kind of dimerization the, these two component system proteins will take on. And I alluded to some of them already. But you get homodimeric, and then you'll have within that homodimeric protein complex multiple potential functional domains, right? As I mentioned last lecture, how fun functional domains are generated from structural domains. And these are actually linked within the polypeptide by what are known as flexible hinges. See, again, this, is, this sort of is reminiscent of when we talk about variable change and light and heavy chains when we're talking about, uh, for example, the production of immunoglobulins or T-cell receptors. But this is not as sophisticated because there isn't a recombinase that's generating multiple ways of producing those different chains, right? You're pretty much left with just a couple of proteins. And so that's why it's a two-component system. doesn't mean that it's, um, it's not complex. Because you have an N-terminal sensor domain. Remember, that's, called, that's also known as the input domain. And that's actually the most variable region. It makes sense because it is going to be in, um, the component that necessarily specifies whatever the unique environmental ligand will be. And that will also be directly linked to the membrane lipid component that acts as an annulus around the transmembrane domains. Because remember, you're getting a signaling that's essentially extracellular, and you have to transduce that through the membrane. At the same time, you have a phosphate that's going from the histidine kinase. It's going to go all the way interior into the bacterial cell to add that phosphate to that aspartic acid on the RR. Right? So there's a lot of movement of the polypeptide in the membrane. So there's highly conserved dimerization and phosphotransferase domains on the histidine kinase. Um, and those, those domains have their own names, DH, dimerization, and then the histidine KA, that's actually the phosphotransferase system. And they're actually embedded in the intracellular compartment and it's actually responsible for, ultimately, 
the autophosphorylation of the conservative steam residue, but also for the phosphotransfer reaction to the uh, uh, to the RR. Okay, so you see how this is a, a very conservative to component system. Yet there's multiple layers of regulation. So as a pharmaceutical researcher, pharmaceutical science researcher, you can see how there are multiple targets here to consider. But the question is always then, which category do you want to look at? Quantity, quality, modality, or relation? What is the relationship between the uh, dimerization domain and the histidine phosphotransferase domain? Is that linker region something you want to target, for example? Or do you need to look at the relative positioning of those two domains? And ask the question about where a drug can fit, right? So that could be a relational phenomenon. It doesn't have any quantitative measurement. doesn't really have anything other than the relational measurement involved. And so that's, a, that's not really a qualitative difference. It's a relational difference depending on the uh, quasi-positioning of the two domains within the membrane, okay? And then, of course, modality. Are these particular components um, apodictically necessary? Are they just um, randomly assigned so they're occurring this particular sequence of events, still maintaining the same, same level of virulence, um, but then can be switchly, quickly switched to another reorganization of the domains, which means, again, a unique but variable um, consortium events within the protein within the membrane of the bacterial cell to be able to present the modality required for the virulence system to function as a TCS, right? And, and finally, is it, is it a quantitative mechanism? How much of these, how much protein total is necessary in the membrane? And how many of the component proteins are necessary in a given location in the membrane? And that can go back to a relational category. So you have to think about these if you're trying to design drugs. It's, you know, it's not a simple task. And you also have to think about the total relationship to the transmembrane domain. And because I'm a lipid biochemist, I'm just going to go ahead and scare pharmaceutical researchers. Then you have to think about the annular lipids around that transmembrane domain. Which lipids are necessary for that transmembrane domain to function? And do they turn over those lipids? I mean, and if they turn over, does that facilitate the transmembrane portion of this 2CTCS to function? Because it might be, because membrane lipids turn over rapidly, much more rapidly than proteins do. Okay. So you get, you get the idea where, you know, where you can get ideas to be able to start generating hypothetical deductions. Yeah, that's the bottom line here. Also remember there is a C-terminal catalytic and an ATP binding domain, right? So you have this histidine kinase-like ATPase, and you have a C at the C-terminal domain, okay? And that's actually common that that particular um, domain is similar to many other ATP binding proteins. So it's a common motif at the amino acid sequence level. 
You also have basic domains in the histidine kinases. And those basic domains are going to vary in number because there are going to be different types of accessory domains that are sometimes included, such as the dimerization domains. This all has to do with the speciation of these uh, proteins. Now, some of the accessory domains include something called the PAS. Now, that's a domain common in in a protein called per aren't sim proteins. You also have a GAF. That's a domain that's common in cyclic GMP-specific phosphodiesterases. Also, adenyl cyclases and bacterial transcription regulator known as the FHLA. And then a domain common for histidine kinases um, called the HAMP. And further unique adenylate cyclases and methyl-accepting proteins and phosphatases. Those are some of the accessory proteins necessary for this whole thing to function. Okay. So then you have to think, of course, about the conserved domain architecture of the RR, and that includes, again, the N-terminal receiver domain. That's called the REC, and that contains the conserved aspartate residue that you know receives the phosphoryl group required for the activation of that regulatory domain. That regulatory domain then is called an output domain. And so now you have multiple layers of specificity that once the specificity is attuned to the activation, they are further elaborated. You could almost say the protein differentiates then into different functions, you see. So what was called the regulatory domain now becomes the output domain because it was only regulatory until it was activated by the phosphoryl group, see? Then the output is generated, which is a new function. All right, so I think, I think we've exhausted pretty much what I want to say here. Um, there's more to this. So if you really want to get deeply involved in uh, understanding the two-component system, you can find more um, elaborate understanding of how those proteins are embedded in the uh, bacterial uh, plasma membrane. And the reason I'm giving you this detail is because, remember, ultimately we're going to be driving down to talking about a subgingival biofilm bacterium that is dislodged from that biofilm from abiotic or biotic condition changes, getting into circulation, and then finding residence in, for example, we talked about in the cardiovascular system, but we're going to also go back to talk about solid organs, such as the pancreas. Yeah. And so the signaling that's involved, even in the two-component system, is going to be playing a role in the trafficking of that bacterial cluster to those various host sites where um, an infection will uh, be initiated, a new infection, the infection into a new system, like into the pancreas or into the cardiac system, right? Or the vessel wall, right? The vessel wall itself. 
and then whether or not there will be a full-blown bacterial infection and population increase, proliferation of the bacteria, or will the bacteria be controlling the immune response, but also in intimately involved in triggering an oncogenic event, which is what we're leading to in the pancreatic uh, ductal adenocarcinoma, right? Now, keep in mind that the subgingival biofilms depend less on saliva for the nutrients than on the flow and the direct composition of that fluid we talked about earlier. That's the gingival crevicular fluid, the GCF. So that GCF will allow for the bacteria to adapt to low redox potential and even facultative anaerobiosis. Yep, that's right. So then there has to be attention paid to the GCF, you see? So the gingival crevicular fluid, all it starts, this is up in the gingiva again, in the oral cavity, is actually a pro-inflammatory exudate that's derived, as we talked about before, from various periodontal tissues. And it is, of course, composed of serum and what's in the serum, and then all those locally generated um, biochemicals, such as breakdown tissue products. Okay, so these are going to be cellular debris. Inflammatory mediators coming from the low level of innate immune inflammatory response in the diseased subgingival area. And then also those sigas, those antibodies, directed against, presumably, the dental plaque bacteria itself. And its constituents, this GCF constituents, you know, what makes up that fluid is from a number of sources, including the serum, the connective tissue, the epithelium, and all of which is GCF has to pass its way to the crevice where the bacteria is residing. Okay, So that means there's going to be changes in oxygen tension, redox, pH, and things like that, right? and temperature, as well as exposure to abiotic events such as oral rinses, brushing teeth, and then potentially whether or not this patient that has this subgingival plaque is on antibiotic. So you have to consider about junctional epithelia. And again, that whole antimicrobial defense of the perio periodontium. Okay. So that gives you a little bit more feel where we are now. Okay. So it's been demonstrated that this GCF is very complex and variable. And it does indeed have leukocytes, leukocyte fragments. So think dendritic cells, think macrophages, think, of course, neutrophils, but also structural cells themselves of the periodontium and, of course, whatever the consortium oral bacteria. So you, again, remember you have supra and subgingival sub biofilms. And remember, they become dysbiotic because of changes in environmental, which includes host response. So 
there can be dental caries or periodontal disease, or there can be both, even in one location. Those are two different types of bacteria that are going to be residing in those infection cords. And shifted dysbiotic community is going to involve multiple alterations in the biofilm consortium species. And that's going to include um, a response to changes in those environmental conditions I just explained to you. So there's, because it's an oral cavity, you can understand that this is a continuously changing oral and microenvironment okay, in that GCF. And that means they're going to be changing micro, uh, various types of microbes and then all those regulatory systems I just went through with you. Okay, are all going to be functioning at various rates of firing, preparing for either maybe planktonic life or maintaining their position in the biofilm or going ahead and initiating a unique infection by just one bacterium, not the whole biofilm. Okay, so. That's where we are now. I spent a great deal of time on the dental framing of this, okay? And I wanted to because if we just mention, oh, well, there are bacteria that are in the oral cavity, and sometimes they are dislodged, and then they end up in the you know various organ systems like the heart or the pancreas or the liver or the kidney uh, or even the brain, and that those could be related to diseases as harmful as uh, cardiovascular disease and pancreatic cancer. Then the question would immediately come to mind, well, what is it about these bacteria? So now I gave you all that background information.